Once again, good morning. My name is Dion. So glad that you're here. Glad that those of you who are joining us online are joining us today also. Today, as we uh, start into this message today, um, uh, guideposts about, about the Trinity, how do you see God? It's an important question. How do you see God? What is your, what is your picture of God? I wonder, is, is your picture of God a black woman? Uh, the movie The Shack depicts God during part of the movie this way, ju- just like this, and it's drawn some controversy for a number of reasons, but this is, this is one of them. I've not seen the movie yet, I fully intend to, but everyone I love and respect who has seen the movie raves about it, and so uh, I don't see anything wrong with it. I-, I think the controversy, though, maybe for a lot of different things, is because this picture of God doesn't match with our internal pictures of God. So how do you see God? What's your, what's your picture It's not a black woman, maybe it's a black man. Not just any black man, but Morgan Freeman. I mean, the voice alone sells him for the role, doesn't it? Uh, Bruce Almighty, he played the role of God. Uh, Or maybe for you, uh, you would choose a cigar-smoking comedian as your picture of God. Um, George Burns in the, I think it was 1970s, 60s, 70s, uh, Oh God, I think the movie was called. Uh, And maybe you stay away from humans entirely when you picture God. Maybe you go with something more like Chronicles of Narnia, the picture of Aslan, the lion, the great and powerful and yet kind of snuggly lion. Um, maybe that's a picture of God for you. When I was a kid growing up, my picture of God looked something a little more like this. Um, you know who this is? Gandalf. This is Gandalf the White, not Gandalf the Gray. Um, there's a difference, right? Uh, but this movie wasn't out yet when I was a kid, and yet this is kind of the picture I had, uh, I had of, of, of God. Uh, sort of like, I mean, since Gandalf wasn't in the movies yet, he was just in books, my picture looked a little bit more like a ripped version of Santa Claus. <laughs> kind of like Santa Claus with the beard and everything, old guy, but crossfit, you know, just like ripped out because God isn't, God isn't soft. He's not pillowy. He's, you know, he's ripped. So that was kind of my picture of God. The question for you today is how do you view God? What's your picture? What does it look like? So that picture you carry is important for more reasons than you think. Now, uh, throughout time, God has been slow in revealing himself to us and giving us a picture of who he is. Uh, to be certain, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they got to see God exactly for who he was, and they got to walk with him and see him face to face, and so they knew. But when sin came into the world and humans started running from God and hiding from God, our view became obscured. And yet, God persisted in revealing himself to us, albeit slowly. And so to Abraham in the Old Testament, one of the patriarchs, God revealed himself as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, these symbolic objects, but that's how he revealed himself to Abraham. And, and then later to Moses, you might remember, he revealed, him, revealed himself to Moses first in, in a burning bush. And then to the Israelites in the wilderness, he revealed himself through a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. So there was lots of fire as God was revealing himself. Later on, he revealed himself again to Moses. This time, the Bible says, he revealed himself to Moses face to face, which was a, a privilege. And because of that, Moses would, would glow. He would radiate light from the time he would leave the presence of God and go down in front of the people, and it kind of weirded the people out. But that's what his encounter, being able to see God, that's what it did to him. And there were a few others who got to see God face to face. But for the most part, throughout time, God kind of remained obscure. Uh, he remained transcendent. The view was that God was one, the scripture said so, but God was far off. He was distant. He was not like us. And so a picture of a smoking fire pot or a pillar of cloud or fire, that made sense to people. They grew very comfortable with that picture of God. 
And that picture of God persisted for centuries until the first century, Palestine, where suddenly this man starts walking around, this, this uh, man from Nazareth, son of a carpenter, and, uh, and he starts not only calling God his father, but he starts implying that he and the father are one, that, that he is God in human flesh, which of course is a crazy claim. Except this man could do miracles to back it up, breathtaking miracles that, that shocked and, and amazed people. And even when they put him to death for treason, for claiming to be a king, they put him to death under Roman law for, for uh, coming against Caesar. Even after that, there were reports that this man was raised again from the dead, that he came back and appeared to so many people, and there were eyewitnesses everywhere. And suddenly people had to start rethinking their picture of God. And then 50 days after that, there were some of these followers of Jesus gathered in a, in a place in Jerusalem, and, and a spirit descended on the place they were gathering, not an evil spirit, but a Holy Spirit. And that Spirit fell upon them and it it filled them and they were doing signs and wonders and speaking in different languages and and miracles started coming out of that group of people and and the Spirit filled them with the very fullness of God. And suddenly, what was a pretty simple picture of God, God is one, he is transcendent, he's, he's smoky, he's far off, he's fire, whatever it is, suddenly that picture becomes a lot more complicated. And people start using a word a few hundred years later to describe this. They start using this word trinity, tri-unity, three in one. God is one, yes, but he's three persons. And somehow that all works together. A word that never appears in the Bible, by the way. It's one of our only, it's our only guideposts that we're going to talk about in the series. The only guidepost that we'll talk about in this series that isn't named in scripture. And yet it's a scriptural concept that we'll look at today. And yet people are rightly confused by it throughout all of time. This new picture of God causes problems for them. It causes division. It causes some to, to, to reject it entirely. And that's what some people do. They say, no way. And they stick with the, with the former picture of God. They say, a, a, a fire pot, the blazing torch, the burning bush, I'll stick with that. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit, there's something lesser, if anything at all. There are some outside of the faith who, who see this whole Trinitarian thing as just nonsense, and they use this as a reason to say, you know what, none of this makes sense. There's, there's no credibility in Scripture. And, you know, on face value, you can't blame them. It, it is pretty confusing. There are many others, people maybe like us uh, sitting here today, who, 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 who say, okay, and they try to embrace it. But in trying to embrace it, we make a fatal step. We try to explain it. And in trying to explain it, we fall off into all kinds of disunity, we get divided amongst ourselves, we may even fall off into heresy. Now, I know it's a week and a half late for St. Patrick's Day, uh, but some of you know St. Patrick, he, he was said to bring the Christian faith, teaching on the Trinity to the, to the whole uh, country of Ireland, and uh, we don't know exactly what that looks like, but I want to show you a video of what that might have looked like. Take a look. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. 
Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms, liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously... I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. Okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats, get riotously drunk, and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. <laughs> so, uh, you know, nerdy theology humor aside, y you can start to see what happens as people try to, try to explain this thing. There's all kinds of division, and, and there are heresies, and there are councils, and they're wrestling with all of this. And, and that's because I don't believe the Trinity is meant to be explained. That's where it all comes down to. Embraced, yes, but not explained. See, see, the Trinity must be embraced because it's scriptural. Take a look at Matthew chapter 3. It's at the baptism of Jesus. Watch what happens. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the river. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And then a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You see in this moment, the three persons of the Trinity all interacting in one place, 
you know, distinct from each other. Jesus coming out of the river, the spirit descending, the voice of the father from heaven speaking. So you get this picture that the Trinity's three in one. But uh, let's ask the, the middle school algebra question. So what? Why do I need to know this for my life, right? If you have a middle schooler in algebra, you understand. Um, what's the point of this? Why is this the guidepost? The rest of the guideposts we're talking about in the series, they make sense. Prayer, <laughs> confession, God's laws, communion, baptism. I get how those might guide me on my journey, but, but, but the Trinity, it only frustrates and confuses and there seems to be no good purpose to it. Why do I need to know this? See, it all goes back to that question I asked you at the beginning. How do you, how do you see God? What is your picture? Not so that you can explain him, because explaining him just, just gets you into trouble, but so that you can embrace him, so that you know how to approach him, so you know what it means to relate to him. Today we're going to look at the Trinity, and we're going to look at it in a way that Jesus describes it, which is completely relationally. It's all about relationships. So we're going to go to John chapter 14, and uh, we're going to look at this moment in Jesus' life where he's, he's nearing his betrayal and death, and he's speaking to his disciples about what will happen after that. So he says to them, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So here you see Jesus talking in Trinitarian terms, right? I will ask the Father and he will send the Spirit, this advocate, the Spirit of truth to you, and uh, you will not be alone. And, and so Jesus is talking in Trinitarian terms. But again, let's notice why he's doing this. It's not so that he can explain the inner workings of God because I don't know about you, but I don't want a God. I don't want to worship a God that I can understand. I don't even understand how we work completely. So, so to try to understand how God works, how his natures interact, his being, his substance, that's way beyond my pay grade. See, what Jesus is saying is not, this is, you know, this is how you can explain God. This is how you re rightly reject heresy. Instead, he's trying to teach us something about relationship and intimacy. Watch what he says next. He says, see, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, right? Because he's going to die, and then he's going to rise, and then he's going to ascend. So people aren't going to see me anymore. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. I just have to pause here because there's a lot of language here in John about keeping my commands, and I don't want you to get the wrong idea that Jesus is somehow saying that you have to be perfect, or you have to follow the law, or you have to keep commands in order to be lovable. He's talking about something else again, remember? This is about relationship. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, if you know me, if you know who I am, if you, if you love me, if you trust me, then you're going to listen to me, right? This is, this is a gauge of how much you actually believe and trust me if you think I'm credible, if you're willing to listen and follow me. He says, the one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. So Jesus, again, is talking in, in language of intimacy, I am in my Father, and I am in you, and you are in me, and, 
And he begins describing the Trinity in very different terms, not what they all do or how they're all made up. But he begins, he begins describing what this, what this relationship and intimacy is like that he enjoys with the Father. And then he begins to say that, that somehow we are invited into that. Now, in a second, we're going to see one of his disciples who is, who is not tracking with this. He's kind of on a different page. Let's look. It says, then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, so you don't have to cue the sinister music, the other Judas, not the one who betrays him, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us? Why do you want to reveal this, this picture of yourself to us and not to the whole world? I mean, this is a good question, right? We ask this question. If God is really God, why doesn't he just appear in the heavens and speak to everyone and then everyone would know? But understand where that question comes from. That is a question that is, uh, is, is preoccupied with, with knowledge or power, not intimacy. See, yes, Judas, everyone would know, but not everyone would love and trust. See, Jesus keeps bringing it back to intimacy. Look at his answer. He says, uh, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, right? If, if you love me, if you trust me, if you know who I am, you're going to listen to me because I'm good and I'm the good shepherd and I want life for you. you, you you'll listen to me because you know where I'm coming from and what I want for you. He says, my father will love them and get this, and we will come to them and make our home with them. I've read John 14 a lot of times. I confess it wasn't until this week that, that these words jumped out at me and I, I realized how powerful they are. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Aren't those really powerful, intimate words? See, that's what this is all about for Jesus. It's, it's about intimacy. That's why he's revealing this, this confusing but fuller picture of who God is. See, why is this important that we uh, dig into the Trinity? That, that we... That we you know, teach this picture, that, that the disciples learn this picture of God, is it so that we can completely understand his inner working, so we can reject partialism and modalism and all the rest? No, no, the reason is so that we can fully embrace what we get in a relationship with Jesus. See, Jesus begins describing this, this, this picture, this relationship of, of intimacy and unity and belonging and love that exists within the very being of God. So you've got to understand that, that if, if the Father is alone, if, if there is only one God and he is alone and he has no community within himself, then maybe he has to create a world to keep him company. And maybe he has to demand that the people of the world worship him because otherwise he has no one telling him how great he is. He has, he has no one affirming him. And, and maybe he demands that the world loves him because he needs love. And maybe he loves people because he needs to love someone. And, and, and that paints a very dangerous picture of God, by the way, right? If God is alone, if he is one, if he is solitary in his being, then we start to get the picture that he is demanding and needy of us, loving us but with strings attached, loving us for what we can bring to him, not just what he can give to us. See, but on the other hand, even though it's confusing, this picture of, of a triune God, three persons, one, one God, if God has intimacy and unity and belonging and love and adoration and glory all happening within himself, then you know what that means? That means he doesn't need anything from us. Doesn't require anything from us. 
and that everything he does is for us. It's gift with no strings attached, no expectations. Do you get why this is important, why Jesus had to reveal this to his disciples? It gets deeper than understanding how the beings of the Trinity work themselves out. It begins to reset our picture, our expectation of who God is. And the idea for me, and this, this is really what blows my mind, the idea that God could, could have all of this within himself, he could have love and belonging and intimacy and unity and adoration and glory all going on within himself, the idea then that he would, he would take the risk to invite people like us into that kind of relationship, right? If, if, you, if you listen to me, if you love me, if you trust me, we will come to you and the Father and I, we will make our home with you. And that blows my mind. What, what an incredibly generous thing to do because I don't know about you, but in my relationships, I'm not like that. See, it, it, with me, and, and maybe this will resonate with you, maybe it won't. With me, when it comes to relationships, my favorite word is exclusivity. Right? If, if, if you want to be close with me, if you can't offer me some sort of exclusivity, if our relationship can't be unique or different than all of your other relationships, then it's, it's, not, a very, it's not a very intimate, close relationship. And over the course of my life, I've been privileged just to have a, a very few relationships that I say would, would give me things like love and belonging and intimacy and where I experience unity, where I feel known and I know the other person and there is love there. I, I think there are only a few relationships where I would say I've, I've had that to a, a significant degree. And I will tell you that those relationships, they're the most powerful things in all of the world. Right? If you've experienced that, you know that that's, that's better than all the money in the world, that's better than all the power and status, better than anything else in the world, is, is to be known, to know, to love, to belong, to be accepted, to have intimacy, to have unity. There's nothing greater. But me in my life, when I find those relationships, here's what I do. I don't know what you do, but here's what I do. I start building border fences around those relationships. And then I hang threatening, no trespassing signs all over. Like, you know, stay away from this relationship. And if you cross those boundaries, I'm coming after you with a shotgun. Because you are a threat. You are a threat to something that is valuable to me. I don't know if any of you are the same way. I remember, I remember back in third grade, Jeff Boholsky. Such a good friend that I learned how to spell his last name. Uh, Jeff Boholsky, third grade. He was such a great guy. He was, he was uh, athletic and he was smart and he was kind and, and he was my best friend in third grade. And then a new kid moved in who shall remain nameless. Um, and, uh, and he started encroaching and man, something in me just snapped. That's my friend. You're, you're threatening what I have with my best friend. Does anyone understand what I'm talking about? See, maybe as humans, that's what we have to do. We, we have to protect intimacy and unity and belonging and love when we find it. We have to keep it from being spoiled. Maybe that's just, that's what it is. But God is different. See, here you have Jesus, and he's talking about the kind of intimacy that he has with the Father, and it is, it is, it is beautiful. And then, thinking nothing of it, Jesus invites us in. And says, come, experience this. And, and come, I, I want you to have this too. And, and you're not going to be a third wheel. You're not going to be some sort of tag-along person who feels awkward. You can be a full partner in this belonging and intimacy and unity and love and, and all the rest. Jesus says, we want to make our home with you. We want to make a life 
with you. No strings attached, because we don't need anything Jesus says. We're, we're full over here, but you do. You need us. See, some theologians call this the divine dance. The persons of the Trinity interacted in this, in this sacred dance of joy and belonging and unity and, and glory, and, and then they turn to us and they invite us into it to join their dance. Wow. And then as he closes up, it, it gets even more complicated, but even richer, I think. He says, anyone who does not love me, who doesn't trust me or listen to me, will not obey my teaching. Of course not. If you don't love him, if you don't know who he is, and why would you ever listen to him? But he says, these words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. And all this I've spoken while still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, again, look at the Trinitarian language, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. See, where does Jesus end? He ends where he began. I will not leave you as orphans. I, I'm leaving, but, but you don't, you, you don't, you're not going to have to miss out on this, this, this thing that you have experienced. There, there's a father, there's me, there's, there's a spirit who will come to you. And, it, and it's so fascinating to me that in human relationships, three is a crowd, isn't it? I mean, I know I've got three kids. You can't argue this point with me. Three is a crowd. It's always two against one. Someone's feeling left out. In human relationships and friendships, a dynamic of three friends is the hardest to manage. Not impossible, but it's difficult. You have to work really hard to make sure that someone isn't feeling left out, that someone isn't feeling excluded. I think this is a sign of God's divinity that he is the only being in all the universe who can do three well. But he doesn't just do three well. He's perfected this difficult dance of three and then he looks at us and he says, come, I want you to join me. I don't want you to be alone. You never have to be forsaken. I want to offer you this gift of love and belonging, intimacy, community. I, I want it to be yours. See, what is this about? It's about relationship. Why is it important that I, that I wrestle with this picture of the Trinity? Not explain it, not explain it, not explain it. People smarter than you have fallen off into heresy trying to explain it. Why is it important that I embrace it? Because Jesus, through this, this, this new picture of God, a fuller picture of God, is trying to help us understand how to approach God. Uh, you know what these are? Anybody? Yeah, they're landing lights, airport landing lights. And at night, you would you definitely see them for what they are, right? Because they, they glow and they're, they're colorful. In, in today's world with, you know, planes that can fly themselves and GPS and all this stuff, they still have landing lights. Why? Because, because they, they, they confirm that you're headed in the right direction, that this is the right approach. See, why does Jesus reveal this confusing, frustrating, dividing picture of who God is? He, he's trying to help us find the right approach to God. See, if your picture of God is that he is a smoking fire pot or a flaming torch, how do you approach that? If he's a burning bush, how do you approach that? I'll tell you how to approach it. Moses fell down on his face and he thought he was going to die. That's how you approach a God like that. Jesus is trying to give us a, a fuller picture of God because, hear me on this, the picture you have of God, your picture of God will determine your approach. Say that again. Your picture of God will determine your approach. 
And so how does God choose to reveal himself to us? It's complicated, I know, but, but he says, hey, approach me as a father. Not as a big, scary, you know, burning inferno, but approach me as a father, as a creator, as one who provides and gives and teaches and disciplines, yes, but ultimately for your good, who forms you, who you can rely on, who you can call on, who's stronger than you when you feel weak. Approach me in that way. And and God says, approach me as a savior, as your redeemer, as the one who can buy you back from your slavery, who can set you free. As a brother, as a friend who loves you and does what a friend does, who lays down his life for you, approach me in that way. God says, approach me as a a spirit, as an advocate. That's what he's called here, an advocate, right? An advocate, one who is cheering you on, one who is fighting for you, one who will reveal truth to you, who will remind you of the truth, one who will lead you in truth, one who will give you peace. That's how Jesus ends. Do you hear that? My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. One who can give you peace. Jesus says, approach me in that way. And again, here's the beauty of this picture, that when you make an approach on any one of those, you find yourself in the middle of this dance of three. This dance of love and belonging, intimacy, unity, community, relationship. You find a home there. You find belonging there. You find life there. But it all goes back to your picture of God. It will determine your approach. And so today I want to close with a song. And the words might be familiar to you. The song is probably familiar to a lot of you too. Um, and in this song, we, we, will, we will profess, we will speak about who God is. And we'll talk about the roles and we'll talk about the functions and we'll get, you know, we'll sing about the what, the, the things that the persons of the Trinity do. And, and that's good and that's right. We should know that. But as we sing this song... I don't want you to get caught up only on the what. I want you to, I want you to constantly be listening and, and declaring the who. The truth about who this means God is. I want you to hear the invitation in the language of the song. More than hearing the invitation, I want you to respond to this invitation. To, to approach God as a father, as a, as a savior, a redeemer, as an advocate. And find the thing that your heart longs for more than anything else in him. Please rise as we sing.